the thing that Walt Disney loved, right? Not only did he get to build this fantastic theme park, guess how many trains he had? All of them? Four full-size, <laughs> four full-size trains. He, apparently the number four was very significant to him. That's the reason oh. there are four parks. Uh, his four parks, again, Frontierland, Adventureland, Fantasyland, Tomorrowland, and there were four full-size trains. And he could ride oh. the trains as much as he wanted. Episode 26, Disney is Autistic. Welcome to the Autistic Culture Podcast. Each episode, we dive deep into autistic contributions to society and culture by introducing you to some of the world's most famous and successful autistics in history. Before we get started, a quick disclaimer on how we use the word autistic. The purpose of this show is not to diagnose the people or characters we discuss as autistic. While some may have announced being autistic, what we're really sharing here is our observation of what is representative of autistic culture. It can sometimes be difficult for autistic people to celebrate our natural tendencies and traits due to the perception of autism as a disorder that needs to be fixed, a long history of damaging medical interventions to get autistics to fit in with mainstream culture, and protective masking skills many of us have developed to try to stay safe. Whether you are autistic or just love someone who is, your hosts, Dr. Angela Loria, the linguistic autistic. And licensed psychological practitioner, Matt Lowry, welcome you to take this time to be fully immersed in the language, values, traditions, norms, and identity of Autistica. Autistica. Hey, Angela. Oh, Matt, uh, I am worried. You have me worried today. Yeah, yeah, uh, especially off the straight off of uh, Temple Grandin, because I, I think that we've got another tricky one ahead because there is there is a, a very, very famous figure that has a very big influence on a great many people with a a near cultish devotion. But uh, there. Oh, it's definitely cultish. Yeah. It, Today's topic is definitely a culty one. Yeah, and uh, that mm. the, the interesting thing about that is that uh, is is the cultish devotion warranted? Uh, uh, what what are we fan fanning about? Because there's there is a famous famous person that very very much had a public side and a private side. And mm. the public side is uh, the, the, the maker of dreams, the bringer of magic, the, the person who inspired artists worldwide. The private side might be a little autistic, but also had some really, really horrible, horrible uh, biases back in the day. Uh, so it's, it's going to be one of those you know, things. We have been exploring autistic culture and like any culture, like it's not, everything is not perfect. Everything is not rainbows and unicorns. We've had rainbows and unicorns, or at least, uh, I don't know, ponies and something like rainbows. I'm not sure, but, um, but it's complicated. Culture is complicated and it's layered. And there are so many amazing memories and dreams that we both have about the contributions of this person. And then also maybe some nightmares and some things we have not wanted to look at uh, in the way that that being autistic has affected the creation and the myth around today's topic. Yeah. So highs and lows today, highs and lows. Yeah, it's it's definitely an interesting ride, a roller coaster ride, if you will, because there's got to be a lot of mentions oh, of roller coasters. And uh, it, I, I, I think that there's a lot of evidence that uh, he's probably one of us. But again, as we talk about Italian culture, uh, Mussolini was Italian, but right? yeah, yeah, uh, right. Highs yeah. and lows, yeah. highs and lows, people. So uh, today's topic: Walt Disney. 
the man, the myth, the dream maker. And, and uh, the, the, uh, <laughs> the, the several theme parks that he uh, loved. And uh, that uh, did you know that apparently the theme parks are the most profitable, po- profitable part of the entire Walt Disney Company? I, I, that doesn't even make any sense to me. It seems like there would be so much cost. Yeah. And I know the tickets are expensive, but I don't get how it's profitable. But that's yeah. great. Figured yeah. something out. It, I, I find that to be baffling, especially when they have like their own channel, their own production company. They make a bazillion dollars a year with merchandising. But yeah, their apparently own the theme town parks, they have to run. How about that? Like yeah. they have a the, fire yeah. department and a police department. Like these are not incidental costs. Exactly. Yeah, I, I find it fascinating. But uh, but that that is the story of Walt Disney. It is a fascinating and complex one. All right. So where are we starting this story? Take me back. Let, well, let, let's let's start off. Let's start off about the okay. duality of Disney uh, uh, with this quote that Disney once said about himself. Disney acknowledged the facade and he told a friend, I'm not Walt Disney. I do a lot of things Walt Disney would not do. Walt Disney does not smoke. I smoke. Walt Disney does not drink. I drink. That was Walt Disney who said, I am not Walt Disney. (laughs) Because again, we are telling the story of two very, very different people, the public Walt Disney and the private Walt Disney. And the private Walt Disney started several years before he was born. Uh, we, in order to understand the story of Walt Disney, we have to understand the story of Himes Electric Park in Kansas City, because way, way, way back in uh, the 1900, uh, electricity was a big attraction, and the Heim Brewery in Kansas City decided to build a theme park as a way to attract people to the brewery. And they had strongman magicians, strongman magicians, snakes, elephants, and a roller coaster. Uh, fun fact, back in the day, you could do a loop-de-loop on a, a roller coaster car that was not connected to the track and did not have seatbelts because who needs safety? It's 1900, right? So they, they had a ton of visitors, 20,000 visitors a day. So they decided to make a brand new location. And in 1907, they made a brand new theme park in Kansas City that had boat tours, a log flume ride, a roller coaster, a scenic railroad, uh, and a train simulator. So you could simulate going on uh, all these other uh, places. It had like a projection to look at what the the film that they recorded in all these areas and uh, two people shaking the car as you went so that you could feel that. They also had a big fireworks display at night and a big light up fountain. And uh, this was a a very popular attraction, especially for a very young boy named Walt Disney. And he uh, he was Walt Disney was uh, born in uh, around Kansas City. He was moved. uh, He he, uh, so when Walt Disney was four, his family, his family moved to a farm in Marceline, Missouri. Uh, he lived near the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe railway lines, and boy, he became a train addict. Oh, he loved all right, trains evidence more than number anything. one. <laughs> exactly. He he loved the trains. He would draw the trains. He would sit and watch the trains, and there were issues and I can't find anything about his father but his father had apparently a lot of problems and in 1911 the Disney family moved back to Kansas City and when he was nine years old he worked as a paper boy to provide for the family he and his brother Roy each took a paper route uh, well two paper routes one paper route before school and one paper route after school in order to help fund the family because again apparently Walt Disney's father had a lot of executive functioning difficulties interesting uh, and uh, he he was so exhausted he fell asleep during school uh, but he also took Saturday courses at Kansas City Art Institute and took up a correspondence course in cartooning but uh, the big thing that he really really loved was escaping to this Heim Electric Park He would go there every time he could, and he loved the Heim Electric Park Scenic Railway. 
he would get on there and that's where he escaped all of this stuff. He dreamt of going back to Marceline. He dreamt of, you know, this idyllic life that he had when he was four before the burdens of being nine. And he really, really loved this, this escapism. And, uh, Anyway, uh, in 1920, Prohibition hurt the Heim Brewery and they dived deep into the park. Uh, his family left for various reasons and Walt Disney became a cartoonist with his friend Ub Iwerks. Oh. Uh, Ub Iwerks is a legendary cartoonist and they uh, start the short-lived Ub Iwerks Disney commercial artists and started drawing illustrations for people Wait, and taking on commissions. before we go there, I want to go back to the Heim Brewing Company in that park just for a second. Oh, yes. Um, Absolutely. And I want you to put your therapist hat on for me. The There were fireworks. There was this train that people were shaking and... When, and a real train, uh, two trains. Right. So like the scenic railway I'm down with, but the idea of somebody like shaking my seat, I'm already annoyed just as you were talking about it. Never my nine-year-old me. Like literally I physically want to hurt people from the 1920s or teens. Um but, and the fireworks were something for me that were like, everyone used to do this thing where they'd be like, ooh, ah, and they were super excited to go to the fireworks, but it was like tons of people and it was super loud and it was very chaotic and stressful. Like there were drunk people, which I didn't understand at that age, which I, I don't know if the Heim Brewing Company had drunk people, but one can imagine. So can you like talk about, sensory seeking versus sensory avoidance because I think I am definitely in the avoidant crowd, AKA my couch is the place to be with a very predictable book. But obviously Disney was digging this park. So talk about that and how that shows up for autistic people, but in, in his case, kids. Well, uh, th- for this one, I'm going to give a shout out to my friend Rachel because she is a hardcore Disney fanatic and uh, she attends Disney World several times a year because she is a roller coaster thrill seeker. Mm. She is autistic. She loves the roller coasters. And we're going to be doing an upcoming episode about a young boy who is autistic, who has made it his mission to ride all of the roller coasters ever. Yeah. And uh, he is a very, very cool kid, very, very sensory seeking. And this is a big thing about autistic people, because, again, we are not a monolith. We are on this, as they call it, a spectrum. And we often uh, some people are sensory avoidant. I'm sensory avoidant. I can't deal with crowds. And uh, when my son says that he wants to go to Disney, I'm like, all right, which are the days when no one else wants to go to Disney? And because I don't want to be around the crowds. I can't deal with that. But some people really, really get hyped by that because uh, because we have this hyper-connected brain that is hungry for data. There, If you have this security, this safety, because you know what to expect at Disney World. You, you look up the maps ahead of time, you know all the rides, and then you say, ah, within this structure, I can indulge my data seeking and you can say, ah, it goes up and down. My proprioceptive, uh, my my vestibular stimulation is going off. My inner ear feels up and down. And a lot of people really, really need that. A lot Mm. of people need proprioceptive stimulation in order to self-regulate. For instance, if you ever need to get up and walk around the room every once in a while, just to keep concentrated, that is a proprioceptive uh, sensitivity that you need to act on. Uh, I I do a lot of reports where I advise that uh, a lot of kids have movement hunger and need breaks to get up and move because we can't sit still for an extended period of time. And the theme parks all apply to people like this uh, because there's lots of experiences to go on. This new Tron roller coaster will turn you upside down and sideways and all sorts of ways. This is what I think is interesting from an autistic culture perspective. I know how much... I like hate things like crowds and roller coasters and fireworks. But if I look at that on the exact opposite side, like if I loved it more than most people, I mean, the fact that I hate it more than most people is why I'm on the couch and I'm one of the best editors ever. 
because I've been on the couch reading and editing books, right? But if you look at it yeah. the opposite side and you're like, God, I love roller coasters. I want to ride every one. I love fireworks. I want to understand what's so amazing about them. I love loud noises and crowds and I want to create a space where people can come together and be in a crowd together. Like you can see things that people that are, we'll say neurotypical, but people who are in the middle who are just like, ah, like it, don't like it, what I could take it or leave it. You can't necessarily make all those connections. And then when you add in the hyper-connected brain factor, you're going to see things that other people didn't see, which obviously I'm, I'm guessing is where this story goes. I'm thinking Disney is about to start a theme park of his own inspired by this one. So Oh yeah, yeah, and and I, uh, this is well, 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 yeah, we'll we'll get there in a minute because when when you do, that's when you see it. Cause, yeah, and well, so well, if and, you and the, yeah. if you are if you have a kid that's sensory seeking and you're shutting that down because it's annoying to you, like I could see having yeah. a sensory seeking child and I'm so sensory avoid it, and it's like you really want to find ways to nurture that. Doesn't mean I would be going on the roller coasters, but you have to find ways to nurture that because that's where the magic is in these like weird nooks and crannies that we gravitate towards. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the specificity, the, the, the brilliance is in the details mm. and uh, boy, he loves some details. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, one Yeah. I was going to say, oh, yeah. I, I derailed your story. He was meeting a famous cartoonist. Oh, uh, mm -hmm. Ub Iwerks. Yeah. Yes. And uh, th that with Ub Iwerks, he created Laughograms uh, and uh, the, the Alice shorts uh, the, were very, very popular. Uh, but uh, he, he later moved to L.A. with his brother Roy in 1923, and they formed the Disney Brothers Studio, which later became the Walt Disney Company. Uh, Unfortunately, in 1925, the electric park burned down. And uh, of, of course, it was an electrical fire because, you know, electricity. But uh, anyway, uh, in 1926, he and Ub created Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. And it uh, turns out that when they distributed through Universal, Universal owned Oswald for about a century. Uh, so he decided, oh, I've got a lockdown on that. I must have lots of control over things. So this will never, ever, ever happen again which uh, became a theme throughout his life of, uh, I, I will no longer be bamboozled, I will be the bamboozler. So uh, in 1928 was Steamboat Willie, powered by Cinephone, and Cinephone later became a whole other thing. Uh, in 1933, he produced The Three Little Pigs, which has been since uh, reanimated because of uh, very anti-Semitic portrayals. Yeah. So it, uh, it was very interesting. Uh, in 1934, he wanted to make Snow White because he wanted to push animation to its limit. Uh, he wanted to develop a multi-plane camera, make it as realistic as possible. He brought animals into the studio for people to, you know, watch and animate. This was his hyper-focus at the time. He really, really, really loved innovation in animation at any cost. And uh, Studio Insiders called this Disney's folly because no one had ever done a full-length animated feature before. They thought no one would watch it. They thought he was insane. He was the artistic one. His brother, Roy, was the money guy. So he said, yeah, I'm going to sink all kinds of money into developing this multi-plane camera, and it's going to be great, and everyone just kind of groaned. Uh, so anyway, he started on all this. Uh, they start working on Pinocchio and Fantasia. And in 1937, he's like, you know, this is all really stressful. I really wish I had an amusement park. Because I can't go to uh, the electric park anymore. I really, really wish I had one. Uh, this is where we come into a very controversial part uh, of Disney's history. Because in 1938 was Kristallnacht, the, the Night oh, of Broken yeah, Glass. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And uh, right after that, uh, that's when Disney gave Hitler's pet filmmaker, Lenny Reifenstahl, a tour of his studio. Because she came over to the U.S. trying to promote Olympia, her uh, docu her German focused documentary of uh, you know the the Olympics, and uh, uh, at this point uh, you know uh, 
uh, I think it was Goebbels or Himmler, uh, I don't care to remember Nazi details, uh, was very angry with her, had a very big thing. They had a big row. But uh, she came over and he gave her a private tour of the studio. Uh, she said, quote, it was gratifying to learn how thoroughly proper Americans distance themselves from the smear campaigns of the Jews. Oh. That that was her takeaway from Walt Disney. Mm. And... Uh. Uh, uh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, that uh, that created a bit of a stir at the time and as it would. And uh, since then, there have been a lot of people who said, oh, no, that was just a thing. He would give anybody a tour. But again, he he has this remarkable tendency to align himself with anti-Semitics. For instance, uh, there was a 1941 animator strike that lasted either five weeks or four months, depending on the source that you go with. And we'll include all the sources in the show notes. Uh, but a lot of this writer strike was due to Walt Disney making a brand new building for the animators that he designed himself because he knew what was best for the animators. And he also wanted to build apartments next to the studios so that the animators could live at work and work where they live. Because he said, I think everyone would just love being around here so much. They just never want to leave. Right? Okay. You just love work so much. Why ever leave, guys? Yeah. Let's stay here and work all the time. And uh, But I'm also going to need to slash your salary to pay for these apartments where you'll never live. Of course. Uh, so, right. Uh, yeah. So this, this was a giant 1941 animator strike. And this really, really threw Disney for a loop. He did not understand why these people were upset. Uh, this is one of many instances where apparently Walt Disney had a a great difficulty reading the room. He he did not like to be argued with because he decided that he was absolutely right. He looked at all the variables. He he took care of all the things and when people didn't agree with him, he he was prone to large outbursts, if not outright mm. meltdowns. Mm, and so anyway, uh, they staged this uh, uh, strike, and he was so upset that uh, he was convinced to uh, join the. Uh, uh, let's see here. Uh, oh, oh, uh, the, he. Rumors say that he then started uh, reporting directly to the FBI and narking on people uh, for the House Un-American activities because he said, oh, yes, it's a bunch of communists. So apparently they had a file open for him from the 40s all the way through his death in the 60s because he would he would personally say, yeah, I think that one's a, a communist because he's not doing the thing that we should do. And it's yeah, that was a whole thing. Mm. But, but anyway, in 1942, Bambi, Fantasia, and Pinocchio all lost money. Roy uh, persuaded them to do more live action in order to make up some money. And after that, after the, uh, the need for money, after the, uh, the, the, the strikes, a bunch of his friends uh, said that uh, he, the Motion Picture Alliance was uh, not... the. the Okay, so let's see here. Uh, they told him to join an organization dedicated to, quote, ridding Hollywood of commies. Uh, the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals. And many of its members were known anti-Semites. And uh, so uh, a lot of people like Jack Warner and Louis B. Mayer, uh, anti-communists, refused to join because of the anti-Semitic stuff. So they're... But Disney, he was fine. Mm. Uh, as a matter of fact, the creator of Goofy, uh, Art Babbitt, uh, what, it, it was a famous Jewish animator. Uh, he worked closely with Disney and claimed in uh, Peter Fotis Cap Capnisto's book, uh, quote, uh, the, the name of the book is Hitler's Doubles, that, quote, in the immediate years before we entered the war, World War II, there was a small but fiercely loyal, I suppose legal, following of the Nazi party. There were open meetings anyone could attend, and I wanted to see what was going on myself. On more than one occasion, I, dis I observed Walt Disney and Gunther Lessing, Disney's lawyer there, along with a lot of prominent Nazi-afflicted Hollywood personalities. Affiliated. Sorry. Uh, Freudian slip. 
Nazi-affiliated Hollywood personalities. Disney was going to these meetings all the time. I'm getting so into there was a Yeah, getting, so there was a very, very... Uncomfortable. Yeah. So uh, according to, uh, you know, Art Babbitt, he was seen at American Nazi Party meetings in the time leading up to the war. But, uh, of course, once uh, the Americans entered the war, then he uh, became very, very gung-ho about making uh, anti-Nazi propaganda because that was very profitable. Oh. Uh, he... Yeah, he transformed the studio into a propaganda machine for the U.S. government. But at the same time, apparently, people say he was very depressed. After the strike at the studio, he was very bitter. He said the commies had infiltrated the studio. He just didn't care about anything anymore. Okay, I want to... He wanna... was very put off by all these people. Uh, wait, hold on. Okay, we got two things. We're going to get to the depression in a second, oh, but yeah. I want to go back to the righteous indignation piece. So... Ah, this, yes. I want to tie this again to autistic culture, but also maybe some of the science that you can bring into it, because we've talked a lot on here about how a big part of autistic culture is usually social justice. And yeah. sort of like I was saying, I was sensory avoidant and Disney is sensory seeking. It seems yeah. like we're doing that same thing again, because this is not social justice. It feels like social injustice to me. But there's something I think that's similar that I just want to tease out that's a part of the culture, which for me, not, you know, science educated on this stuff like you are, but what it looks like is this like righteous indignation. Once we get an idea mm -hmm. that, you know, butterball chicken is right. What's yours? Hillshire Farms turkey is the we'll right turkey. We will die on the damn Hillshire Farms Hill. So at some yeah. point he got this idea, everyone should live at work and I will yeah. give them housing. I will simply reduce their salary, but they will have a place to stay. Like, and it just seems as right as Hillshire Farms or, you know, treating trans people like they're humans to me. Yeah. So what do you think that, why is that a part of our culture? And, and yeah, how do you think it shows up here? I, I think that it also, this is uh, one, uh, this is a rough thing because it, we, we need order because we live in a very chaotic world and his version of order came through with this. We have a very tight knit bond. We, we do not, we don't do anything uh, meaningful halfway. Our relationships are on or they are off. And especially if these animators, he, he really apparently had very high opinions of the animators until they said, no, we don't want to live at work. We don't like this building that you made for us. And please pay us the money that you said you would. Which and probably he said, oh, felt like a what? betrayal. He's like, yeah. I made you this amazing place. How are you not on yeah. board? We could be together yeah. and work 24 hours a day. It'd be so good. Why don't you like me? He took it as a personal affront. Aww. And that's why he right. said, they're all communists. These people just don't like working. And he took it as an affront to this capitalistic dream that he was. But, but that's the thing about his upbringing, too, because for some reason, his father was unable to work and he had to support the family at age nine. Yeah. He was indoctrinated into the capitalistic system at nine. A nine-year-old having to supply, you know, money for food for his family. Otherwise, they would be homeless. Right. And this this became the way for him because this, this early formative experience of saying, we have to do it this way, that became the template for everything there on out. And again, this providing a place for his animators, he had insecurities with uh, housing. He had insecurities with food. Mm. He was trying to provide for people, but not doing it in a way that other people wanted. He did right. not understand what these people wanted. He said, oh, this works for me, so it'll work for you guys, right? right? And they right. said, no, not so much. And again, this is where this kind of stuff comes in. 
We love sharing stories of autistic culture. And if you are seeing yourself in any of these stories and you're wondering if maybe you're one of us or maybe you're already diagnosed or self-diagnosed and you want to know if Matt can help you live your life better and be more authentically autistic, check out his website at mattlowerylpp.com. That's Matt, M-A-T-T, Lowry, L-O-W-R-Y. And then that L-P-P, it stands for Licensed Psychological Practitioner. So head on over to mattlowrylpp.com and learn more about working with my buddy, Matt. And this, I know we're, I know we're leading to depression and hopefully we'll talk a little bit about, you know, how that shows oh, up for autistic people. But, but yeah. <laughs> but like when you have a way and you can see it and you're sure it'll work and all you have to do is get everyone on board and yeah. then it doesn't work, that is like such a devastating feeling. Like when you can get people on board, it's an amazing feeling, but when you can't and everything starts to fall apart and there's more chaos, um, you know, a lot of people think depression and anxiety are traits of autism. But yeah. uh, to me, they're side effects of, of, uh, of being autistic. It's not like the yeah. main dish, but it, you are more likely to get depressed when you have such a clear vision and then you can't control every single thing about it. And that goes into the monotropic focus because he was so, when he was on, he was on all the way. He personally planned out all of the details. Uh, he was very, very invested in all this. And he was very, he, he, he genuinely thought that the animators would just be over the moon for this new place. Mm -hmm. And that's where the depression came in because that's when he said, oh my God, they hate me. Why do they hate me? They must be communists. I hate communists. Everybody hates communists, right? So it, it was very, very crushing for him. It was a, this was a burnout period in his life. One of many mm -hmm. that uh, he will suffer throughout the entirety of his life because he did not get that response that he was, it took him by surprise. He was shocked that they hated it because he thought out all the details and did everything for them, but they didn't like it. Yeah. And he just, he was very, very depressed. And uh, that, that, that was a very rough time for him. Mm. Uh, also uh, uh, at this time, uh, Ward Kimball, uh, he, he met this man named Ward Kimball. Ward Kimball uh, was a very, very fun guy to be with. They, uh, they both love trains. And you know what made Ward a really good friend? He had a train. Ah, that is a good friend. Ward Kimball had a full-size train in his backyard that he restored. He had a track in his backyard, and he invited friends for steam-up parties, and he let Walt drive the train. Walt got oh. to drive the train. He got to pull the whistle, and this made him Walt's best friend in the entire world because he would go over to Ward's house. They would ride on the train together, and he was just... He was over the moon with this. Uh, as a matter of fact, they both went to the Chicago Railroad Fair in 1933 uh, and saw the Century of Progress Fair. And yeah. uh, he was very, very attracted to the models that they had there. It very much appealed. Ward said that Walt Disney had, quote, a perfectionist nature. Mm. He was very, very interested in the details. And that's when Walt Disney became an avid modeler. And he loved models. He, he loved making models. He loved when other people made models for uh, him for movies and he wanted to have designs and he started making a model train in his own yard. Mm. Uh, but uh, mm. uh, Ward also said, quote, some of his associates thought Walt didn't particularly like women. He didn't trust women or cats. And of no. course... Uh, there is that letter that I showed you that we can put up that says women do not do creative work. He allowed women to do uh, tracing and inking, but not 
actual animating because, again, he said that women couldn't do it because reasons. But, uh, but, but anyway, uh, Ward didn't see that uh, Walt was anti-Semitic, but that uh, Walt willingly, even enthusiastically, embraced them and cast his fate with them. But uh, that's that's a whole other thing. But uh, he was still a friend of Walt Disney. He said, hey, buddy, why don't we come over here where there's trains? Leave those other guys out of this. I don't like those other guys, but come over here and we can play with trains together. And Walt Disney said, man, you're my best friend in the whole world, Ward. You know me and you know my trains. So anyway... This got, uh, well, uh, Walt decided that uh, he was going to uh, make a park where he could ride his trains. He visited uh, Henry Ford's Outdoor History Museum. He loved Henry Ford, notorious anti-Semite, and uh, saw that you could build an outdoor history museum uh, with a railroad. So he built this miniature rideable railroad around his home called the Carrollwood Pacific Railroad. He wanted to put a railroad across uh, the street from his studio. So he decided, you know what would be cool? If we built a theme park right across the street from the studio so I could go ride on a train every single day. So uh, he decided that he was going to make a uh, he he visited the Beverly Beverly Park Kitty Land. Uh, he he'd said, you know, we can make a small village. We can do studio tours. I will call it Disneylandia. And uh, we he wanted to make visual jukeboxes with little miniatures in it, so you could see these miniatures and ride a train. It was going to be great. And uh, everybody at the studio said, you know, Walt, you're a little distracted these days. You you like uh, playing with your toys. Why why don't you look at the movies that we're making? And uh, he, he just did not have the passion for the movie making anymore. So Cinderella was largely made without him. Oh. He visited other theme parks like Tri- Tivoli Gardens. Uh, and Tivoli Gardens, he talked with the people who made these theme parks. And the owner of Tivoli Gardens said the park, quote, will never be finished because they're always adding new things and always adding new attractions. And Walt Disney found the park very clean, quote, and so he really, really loved going to these parks. So he 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 set off on this quest to visit as many theme parks as possible, to visit uh, all these people who made the theme parks possible, to take measurements of sidewalks, to take measurements of trees, to have all of this incredibly detailed information about what makes a park work, why a park makes him feel happy, and how to replicate that. Uh, so, uh, he met this artist named Harper Goth. Uh, he met Harper Goth in a train store <laughs> and he said, Oh, I want to buy this train. And Harper Goth said, I also want to buy this train, sir. And, uh, so they got into a conversation and he said, Oh, you're an artist. And he said, yeah. And he says, well, I'll tell you what artist, why don't you come work for me? Yoink. And, uh, Disney took the train. So anyway, uh, Harper Goth was later hired to be a concept artist for all these theme parks. And that was one of Walt's best friends because they love trains together. So he wanted to make uh, the Mickey Mouse Park that had fairgrounds, shops, restaurants, a small town, a railroad, Americana, fire stations, a police station, a church graveyard with a haunted house and a castle. So he began consumed with Mickey Mouse Park. And uh, it was all about nostalgia. Uh, he, he made this movie, So Dear to My Heart, which is a movie about nostalgia for his time living in the country. Uh, but he also get, became really caught up in revisionist history. Uh, he romanticized Americana. He was big into Buffalo Bill Cody. He saw Buffalo Ki- Bill Cody when he was four. And Buffalo Bill Cody was a big part of whitewashing American history and uh, really dominating the image that most Americans had about indigenous people. Uh, and that was a whole problematic thing. But but that's the thing. Walt Disney remembered his simple childhood before the struggles of being a nine-year-old supporting his family. And he wanted this place where he could go back to his childhood. Very much a Citizen Kane sort of thing, right? And he wanted to build this amusement park. He wanted a simple life. He wanted to be happy. 
Citizen Kane uh, wasn't no. Citizen Kane wasn't based on Disney. That was somebody else. No, 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 uh, no, no, not that at was all. Like a uh, that was or something. I forget his yeah, name. Uh, Randolph Hearst. That's it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. So this is a quote by Roy Disney, his his brother who ran the financial matters. Walt does a lot of talking about an amusement park, but I think he's more interested in the ideas that would be good at an amusement park rather than actually running one himself. So there was because no park at this point. This is before the park opened. He's oh, just th- this was years before the park was wow. even built. He okay. would sit around and doodle amusement parks uh, in- instead of, you know, working at the studio. He was sitting in his office doodling amusement parks and hiring people and spending studio money to do all this. And uh, Walt, or, or Roy was like, you know, Walt, you, you got to tone it back a little bit. And he said, screw you, Roy. I'm going to create W.E.D. Enterprises for Walt. Uh, oh, man, what's his middle name? Disney Enterprises uh, to create Disneyland. Mm. And uh, yeah, so he he made a proposal in Burbank and Burbank turned him down. And he said, I bet it's those animators that caused the rejection because he's still really bitter that they rejected him and didn't want to okay. live with, you know, with him. So uh, anyway, he he found this place in Anaheim and he had this great idea. He wanted to turn of the century town like he grew up in a railroad station, a castle. And his parks were going to be True Life Adventureland based on his nature documentaries, Lilliputian Land full of miniatures, recreation land where he could go and have picnics, frontier country with the Old West like Buffalo Bill, and a filming location on set for the Mickey Mouse Club so that, you know, he could have like a tax write-off and say, oh, yes, we're filming here. That's what we're doing. So, in so order I to wonder get money, if It's oh, a yeah. Small World came from Lilliputian land. Obviously, very well. Because, obviously, like Frontier yeah. Land made it. They didn't all make it in yeah. there, but... Uh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is where he said, you know, I really want to build Disneyland, but I need a lot of money. That's when ABC said, you know what? We'll make you a deal. If you have a weekly series for us, an anthology series and host it, we will give you a lot of money to build an amusement park. And he said, yes, this will happen. So on October 27th, 1954, he became Walt Disney, the personality the man we spoke about earlier, which was the, the the infallible person, Uncle Walt. And he introduced everyone to the world of Disney, and this became this, this squeaky clean image to present to the world so he could continue to get money to make his amusement park. Because at that point, that's really all he cared about. His, his entire goal was to have this park. So uh, they decided they were going to have Frontierland, the featured Davy Crockett, a, a big star of the show, Adventureland that had his documentaries about all the world, Fantasyland to cover animation, and Tomorrowland because he loved the future. Uh, he hired somebody named Ward Kimball to direct it. And Ward Kimball said, wow, we really need somebody who uh, knows about space and knows about the future. Let's reach out to a noted NASA scientist because NASA just started this thing called Operation Paperclip, which recruited a bunch of Nazis. (laughs) So uh, they hired uh, Werner von Braun, noted Nazi scientist, uh, in order to work on the Tomorrowland project. Because again... Walt Disney worked with anybody. It's just that he happened to have a whole bunch of Nazis. Uh, So anyway, uh, Tomorrowland also got a whole bunch of sponsors, including General Motors, Richfield Oil, Monsanto, and the National Lead Company. They had exhibits. The National Lead Company uh, had an exhibit with Dutch Boy Paints, the lead paint of the future. So, yeah. So again, the the original Tomorrowland... uh, the, the, the Land of Tomorrow, sponsored by Monsanto, lead paint, and a Nazi. It was uh, it was interesting. Yeah. So, but, but the thing that Walt Disney loved, right? Not only did he get to build this fantastic theme park, guess how many trains he had? All of them? Four full-size, <laughs> four full-size trains. He, apparently, the number four was very significant to him. That's the reason oh. there are four parks. 
uh, his four parks, again, Frontierland, Adventureland, Fantasyland, Tomorrowland, and there were four full-size trains, and he could ride oh. the trains as much as he wanted. He hated to be told no. So so anyway, uh, he in 1957, he's decided to start planning bigger. And he said, you know, these animators, they're all commies. They hated me. You know, I love working with artists. Artists are my people. Artists who love trains are my people. Trains are my people. No, dial it back. Artists are my people. So he decided he was going to create a project called City of the Arts, a planned community, a functioning city of arts and art students. And uh, this eventually became Cal Arts. Uh, but anyway, oh. uh, he, he was very conflicted around that time. He, he was conflicted with the public image. He, it was starting to chafe him because he had to be Uncle Walt. He had to have this personality on all the time. He became reclusive in his private life because he was so turned on all the time in his public life. Uh, so, but the thing that he wanted to do, he wanted to change people's lives. He wanted to do this on a big scale. So he had this secret project called EPCOT, Epcot. Uh, and he, he wanted to have, uh, man, what is the, uh, the, the name for Epcot? Uh, Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. Okay. So uh, he said, you know, I really, really want to build this thing. Maybe we can build it in New York. And they checked it out. And uh, Roy was like, no, dude, if you're going to build this thing, you need to build another theme park because we need revenue. You need to think about money. And he said, fine, I'll build another theme park as long as I get to have my super special thing of tomorrow. So they started looking at New York. New York was too cold to operate year round. So they started looking at other areas. And somebody said, hey, I've got a lot of swampland in Florida. And uh, he was like, that sounds great. Building it in a swamp. Let's do that. But uh, that deal fell through. But he still started to look at swampland in order to make this happen. So anyway, uh, he was very frustrated that after he built Disneyland, tourist trap stuff popped up all around. People were around Disneyland. He couldn't go ride his railroad anymore because there was so there was so much traffic and there was so much, you know, urban sprawl around. He hated seeing all this. So he decided, if I just buy an entire county, I won't let anyone else build anything around me and I will have my peace and quiet and ride my trains and watch my fireworks and this will be the thing that will be happy. Everybody will love it and it'll be great. So uh, he, he worried about uh, crime. He worried about uh, uh, traffic. Uh, he worried about urban planning. Uh, he didn't know anything about urban planning. He just thought he was the greatest person on the job. So he just decided he was going to do it himself. Uh, he's, his plan was for Epcot to have 65,000 residents with schools and playgrounds, uh, all this kind of stuff. So anyway, uh, in, on, on the day Kennedy was shot, November 22nd, 1963, he found a swamp, decided this was the location for Project X. So he started buying up land and buying up land and buying up land through all these third-party dealers. So no one knew it was him. But eventually people found out. And in 1965, he held a press conference to announce, quote, the city of tomorrow. Uh, he read, he started on this uh, special interest of books by city planners. He spoke with all these city planners about a central hub and a monorail and a people mover. So uh, Wedcom uh, started the Disney World Industrial Complex, where people would work. Uh, it was three miles in diameter with businesses and a commerce center, a 30-story hotel in the middle, shooting up into the sky. But this entire complex was indoors with a shopping center and a television studio, an international so showcase, because Epcot needed an international showcase, and pavilions from all over the country. But all this was indoor. All of the uh, cars would be underground, and everyone would commute back and forth to these little sal satellite communities and work at the, the place. Because again, he was very, very adamant that people should definitely work and live in the same place because they would totally love it. It was totally work, and everyone would be my friend forever. And 
Anyway, he decided that he wanted fully automated houses. He hated the sound of garbage trucks because they woke him up and he could not stand that. So he wanted this vacuum system. To, to, yeah, yeah. So he decided well, there will be no garbage trucks in Epcot. We will only have vacuum tubes to take away the garbage. And I he decided. Like this plan. Yeah, exactly. He, it was going to be very autistic. And he's he was going to plan this out. Everyone was going to be super happy. Everyone was going to live with him. Everyone was going to be his friend. Everybody was going to work for him. Everyone was going to be happy and everyone was going to love it. And he was going to have 100,000 residents with 6 million visitors a year. And he said, you know what would be great? If the visitors came and got to see your houses. So everybody, open up your houses all the time so visitors can come in and see how cool your houses are. And they want to live here too. And it's going to be really great. Not not great, not great for privacy. <sighs> when autistic people find a special interest, they go deep and have a lot of knowledge, even if they don't have that formal education background to go with it. If you want to capture your spin in a book, check out Angela's work at differencepress.com, differencepress.com, and find out more about becoming an author and establishing your credibility with a book. So, so by this point, he had stopped socializing with people. He, he drank often. He smoked often, which he later died of lung cancer. Spoiler alert. And whenever he got a dinner invitation, he would take out a big red pen and write no and send it back. The only people he wanted to hang out with were his train buddies and his grandchildren. Uh, as a matter of fact, at this point, he became so depressed that uh, he started listening to the same song on repeat a lot. Feed the Birds from Mary Poppin. He would listen to the song and cry in his office. But uh, at this point, he didn't have a system to play the song on recording, so he just kept having the Sherman Brothers come to his office and sing for him repeatedly as oh, he cried. Oh, that is a dream. I would yeah, like yeah, my he, favorite bands to come just sing one song over and over again for four days. That sounds yeah, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they would just come into his office and he would just sit and weep and they would continue to sing Feed the why, Birds. Why do as we you like do. to do that in autistic culture? Why do we like to listen to the same song over and over? Because I, I have that going on. Well, uh, yeah, part of it is echolalia. Part of it is, you know, it's this familiarity and we play it over and over again. And it soothes us because it's familiarity in, in a chaotic, uncomfortable world. And uh, part of it is just uh, we. Because of this difficulty in effectively expressing emotions, because, again, he would have outbursts. He would scream at people. He would lock himself and shut down. This was a, a way for him to have an outlet and be sad because he was increasingly despondent because he wanted this thing. He wanted all these people to love him. He wanted this community. He wanted the community of tomorrow that everyone would say, oh, this is so cool. Oh, this is so great. Please, for the love of God, come in and love me. Yeah. And this is this is why he wanted Epcot. He he loved his grandkids. He 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 loved his train buddies, mm -hmm. but he needed that adoration. He needed these people to give him this approval because again, we're talking about a nine-year-old with a paper route who supported his family yeah. because they could not support Trauma. him. Yep. Yep. So uh he, he, he created the Reedy Creek Improvement District because he wanted autonomy from all local oversight. Which we he, have heard he a lot about this year. We exactly, all know the exactly. Reedy Creek Improvement District now. <laughs> and, and that's why it was created, because he didn't want bureaucrats to come in and tell him what to do. He didn't want these animators coming in and tell him what to do. He just wanted, it because he had this perfect idea, he thought it all out. It was perfect, you guys. Just let me do my perfect thing, and you can see how perfect it is, because my monotropic focus is so good. I've looked at all the details. I've done all the research. You got to let me do my thing. And that this is a thing that we do, because... When we have that monotropic focus, we occasionally overlook little details like human suffering, you know, because, again, uh, there's there's all this. So, so one of his friends pointed out, you know, if uh, these people are buying houses here, they're probably going to want a democracy and to elect a leader. And he said, no, I'm the leader. No. So he decided that uh, the residents could only rent housing. And that the houses would uh, be automatically updated, like, you know, all those Windows updates that you don't want that are forced upon you. 
And uh, yes, he, I know. he said, no, you, you can't uh, you can't own the houses. I'm going to own the houses, but you can totally live in my houses and be my friend. Uh, but again, you know, he wanted it to be continually 25 years ahead of its time. Uh, and he said, again, and, and guys, be open to all these visitors coming and seeing how awesome everything is so they'll want to live with us and be our friends. And Ward Kimball, again, his trained friend said, Disney, you can't experiment with people's lives. That's a direct mm. quote. Uh, so, uh, again, this kind of stuff is not new. Fordlandia uh, by Henry Ford, one of uh, Disney's anti-Semitic heroes, uh, tried to create Fordlandia in uh, South America, uh, which resulted in riots and strikes in the entire town burning to the ground. Uh, yeah. Uh, but, uh, again, as we spoke before about... Uh, questionable people who are role models uh, popping up because no culture, uh, no people are a monolith. Here is a, a quote about uh, uh, how this uh, system would be run by a famous Italian. Mm. As Benito Mussolini himself once said, fascism should be more appropriately called corporatism because it's a merger of the state and corporate power. Huzzah. And with the Reedy Creek Improvement District, that was effectively the it. corporation became the state. Yeah. So I'm not calling uh, Disney a fascist by any means, but uh, Mussolini did. So, okay. you know, well, 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 he, he didn't say it specifically about Disney, but if the quote fits. Yeah. So anyway, he... He, he decided that uh, this was going to be a place where unions would be prohibited, democracy was non-existent, and social security was a laughable notion. Uh, he said that one day they might create a separate community for all the retirees far away from the regular people. Uh, but uh, this was his big dream. He didn't want anyone to interfere with it. He didn't want uh, anyone to stop him. He said that it was going to be perfect. And uh, in 1920s, or, or in 1966, on October 27th, he recorded the Epcot film with two endings: one for the local uh, state legislature to allow him to build this Epcot, and another for the people to say, "Guess how cool this is." But uh, right after that, he found out that he had really severe lung cancer. Uh, he went in for surgery. Uh, he spent the next uh, two months furiously, desperately trying to sketch out all of his ideas, trying to save Epcot, trying to save the city of tomorrow because he wanted this to be his legacy. He wanted people to remember him, not for the guy who created a mouse cartoon, but for a guy mm. who created the ideal city. And uh, even when he couldn't do anything else, he would sit and point up at the ceiling and saying, this will go here, this will go here. On his deathbed, he was still talking about Epcot and how great the world would be and how people would love it and how this was what he would be known for. Uh, he died on uh, December 15th, 1966, 10 days after his 65th birthday. And uh, the, he, in the end, he won 59 Academy Awards uh, oh, no, 59 Academy Award nominations, won 22 awards. Both are records that have not been beaten. Hmm. And so after that, uh, everybody at Disney said, you know, uh, Walt was crazy, right? Yeah, Walt was definitely crazy. We're not doing Epcot. Yeah, never doing Epcot. Never, never. So what do we do with all this land? And Roy Disney said, let's make Walt Disney World. We'll name it after Walt. It, it, it was his world. So they started making Walt Disney World, and uh, they used some of his ideas. For instance, Walt Disney World does have underground tunnels for the workers to go through so that uh, the visitors will never see the workers. They do have a vacuum garbage system, and they used Walt's idea for the contemporary hotel with a monorail running through it because Walt really, really wanted that monorail. He wanted to live in a place where he could get on a monorail and ride every day so he could go ride his trains, and this... This was about who he was. And eventually they did make Epcot in a drastically reduced fashion with Spaceship Earth and, again, the monorail and all the pavilions. Uh, but, uh, again, it is not the totalitarian uh, sort of uh, 
THX 1138 City of Tomorrow that uh, Walt had envisioned. But uh, that's this is the legacy of uh, Walt Disney. It's very, very complicated. Uh, it seems to be that he definitely was one of us. He had the monotropic focus. He had the intense passion for the things that he loved. The man loved some trains. The man had these ideas for the world of tomorrow. He loved the theme parks. He just wanted people to be happy. But again, it's incredibly complicated because he also had a lot of Nazi friends. Uh, and uh, he had a lot of people who were anti-Semitic friends and uh, was, was very, very adamant that things be done his way and only his way because he had totally worked out all the details. And when anyone argued with him, it really, really... His PDA was off the oh, chart. Oh, do we think he was PDA? He must have been. Yeah, he did not like wow. to be told no. And as a matter of fact, uh, his close friends like Ward Kimball said, you know, one thing about Disney is that you always say yes first. And then afterwards, after you say yes, then you say, well, I think that a more realistic way to do that thing that you want to do would be to this way, which is not that thing that you want to do. Because they always had to say yes first, because otherwise the PDA was super real. Wow. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah. The, I, I had no idea that Disney wasn't around to see the park. Yeah. Yeah. He, he died well in advance of that. The Reedy uh, Creek Improvement District, it didn't even go through in his lifetime. Uh Roy Disney, a uh, few months after Walt died, played Walt's last movie about Epcot for the uh, Florida legislature. And that's what got it approved because everyone was still reeling from Walt Disney's death. That's what pushed it all through. Oh. Wow. Okay. So, yeah, that that is his legacy. He wanted uh, Walt Disney World and Epcot. That is Walt Disney's legacy. And again, because it's the... The, the most profitable section of all of the Disney enterprises, the movies, the cartoons. Now they bought Marvel and Winnie the Pooh and Star Wars and Pixar and all of this other stuff. Everything goes back to a man who wanted to play in a park with his kids and trains. his grandkids and ride his trains. Yes. So... Yeah, uh, you can bet your butt that if he was still around today, uh, Thomas the Train would have been a big part of Disney. Right? He would have, he would have bought, bought that, that right up. Yeah. Absolutely. Ha, I love it. I love it. So, All right. Well, that yeah. is quite a legacy from every angle. People are complicated. Nothing is black and white. And... Um, I'm so glad we have Disney World and all the contributions yeah. of Disney. Do you know the story of how his brother's name got dropped off of Disney Brothers to just Walt Disney? I do not. Uh, I, I didn't find that. I'm I'm guessing it's because Roy was more of a behind-the-scenes money yeah, guy. Yeah, that's what it feels and, like. But I was it, afraid there was yeah. some sort of falling out family, but it seems like Roy hung with him till the end. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, it's it seemed like again because he was the creative one. He was a he was a freight train himself, and everyone just said, "All right, let him do his thing. He he's just going to do his thing." So we just got to work around him because you can't argue with somebody who's uh, deeply monotropic focus in that autistic inertia sort of thing. So, yep. But yep. Uh, that said, uh, wow. Hey, Angela, what was what your story. favorite part of being autistic this week? Well, I have a sister story since we're talking about Walt Disney and his brother who clearly put up with him. My sister delightfully puts up with me. And one of our special things that nobody else in our family understands um, is we love wordplay. And uh, the first time this happened must have been in the 80s. We got really into this song by a band called Squeeze, which is pulling muscles from a shell. But Gina and I would spend hours over and over just saying from a shell, for Michelle, from a shell, for Michelle, from a shell, for Michelle, pulling muscles from a shell, for Michelle. And nobody else thought this was interesting, but we would literally spend hours doing this. <laughs> 
recently I found a new one. This is the way. This is the way. I was listening to, um, I was listening to a podcast where I heard an ad for a sidekick, but I kept hearing psychic. So he is saying it's my si- it's my sidekick notebook. It's my sidekick notebook. It's my side, and I'm like sidekick, sidekick, psychic, sidekick, sidekick. So I called my sister and did that, and then a few hours later, she called me back and said, "Inner me enemy, inner me enemy, inner me enemy, inner me oh, enemy." Me. So yeah, so that's what we do. So we've been going back and forth saying psychic sidekick and inner me enemy pretty much nonstop is our main form of communication. And I am I like delighted that. by it. <laughs> that echolalia and pelalalia, that is <sighs> the way. This is this is how we communicate. That's fantastic. We and we say so much. We're like inner me enemy. Inner me enemy enemy. Inner me enemy. Inner me. And it's like it's a whole conversation. I know you might not be able to hear it. We don't need any of the extra words. <laughs> Just those. That, that's the thing. Uh, I, I know people who, uh, even me with my son, we have specific things. It's not like, uh, it, it's our own language. It's our own subcode with all this stuff. And that's a neat thing about autistic families that when you have these sort of things within the family, that, that this is the way of communicating. It's awesome. Yeah. And it is, and it is, uh, you know, it's not a what too bad. It's like such a gift, right? It's so yeah. fun, and there's so much depth to it, and humor, and love, and anyone listening probably thinks we're nuts, but we're fine with that. We entertain ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly. my story uh, for you, and um, I really loved hearing a little more about Disney. Even the dark side, uh, you know, I always say that it's two sides of the same coin. There are so many people who said to me, bosses, HR people, teachers, who were like, if only you could fix your personality, you'd be amazing. And it wasn't until I was diagnosed that I'm like, there, these are two sides of the same thing. If I was able to fix my personality for you, I also wouldn't be the best writer you know, somebody who makes amazing connections, one of the smartest people you always want to have in your corner, somebody who can strategize and help you think out of the box. Like those things can't be separated. And like, that's my big takeaway from the Disney story is like, I, I'm not happy about the like sexism and you know, uh, communism and anti-Semitism. But I also think they are two sides of the same coin that get us all the other things with Disney. And it's just all really complicated. You can't just say, if only Disney was a nice guy who likes sitting around and eating cupcakes and, you know, harmony. It's It's, not like that. Especially being a especially being a product of his time with, you know, everything going on and with the the traumatic childhood. I think that if any of these details had been different, things would have not turned out as they did. Yep. Yes. And I am grateful they turned out how they did. So here's to Disney. I know you've got a trip there coming up soon. I hope this makes it extra special for you. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to the Autistic Culture Podcast. If you like this show, you can help other people find it by taking a few minutes to rate and review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You can find out more about writing your book with me at differencepress.com. That's difference, D-I-F-F-E-R-E-N-C-E, press, P-R-E-S-S.com. Or getting a psychological evaluation or consult with me at www.mattlowrylpp.com. That's M-A-T-T, Matt Lowry, L-O-W-R-Y, L-P-P, as in Licensed Psychological Practitioner.com. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And remember, no one ever changed the world by being like everyone else. Thank you.